Hi folks, I'm Alan Watts and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 26th of October 2010. Newcomers, look into my website, it's called CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com and you'll see lots of other sites I've got listed there. These are the official sites and this is the crazy length you have to go to uh, just to make sure that when uh, the big boys decide to give you problems with one site, you've got other ones to fall back on. That's how crazy it's been in the past. And it costs a lot of cash, of course, to put all these extra sites up. Never mind the work involved, too. However, that's the way it is. And uh, bookmark these other sites for future reference in case the main ones go down again. And also remember, too, if you do get sticking on the com on download, uh, that's because too many folk are going in at one time. Uh, so I'm told by Yahoo. And um, you'll find you can try these alternate sites. Now, they all carry the audios. They all carry a lot of transcripts, transcripts of the shows for print up in English as well. If you want audios and transcripts in other languages, go into alanwattsentinel.eu and take your pick there for print up. And there's quite a lot of them to choose from. And remember, too, that you're the audience that brings me to you. Um, I depend upon you to support me. Um, but this is not a business. It's not a business. And uh, it's a necessity. That's what it is. Uh, and I only came out really before 9-11 even happened because it was time to tell the public something. I, I knew what was coming along, an idea, something really nasty was happening, only because it kept talking about the 21st century and... Um, the beginning of a new era and all that it entailed, a new world order. They were talking about this a long time before 9-11 happened in 2001. And since I've been reading all the books and biographies of the big boys involved and all the big institutions, I knew that something big was planned and had a good idea what it was. I also knew that they'd have to use military techniques and kind of martial law techniques to bring it through. So, as I say, it's up to you to support me. You can buy the books and so on for sale. That's all I have out there. And, uh, and that'll keep me going, I hope. Uh, from the U.S. to Canada, you can send a personal check to, to buy them, an international postal money order. You can also use PayPal to donate or to order. If you want to order a book, you'll see the prices listed on the site. Send the PayPal donation, followed by the appropriate email with your name, address, and order on it. Same across the rest of the world. Some people remember selling send cash. That's still accepted by the banks. And... Um, uh, you can also use Western Union in Europe and other places, but it's kind of expensive. Some people use MoneyGram uh, from other countries in Europe. But as I say, cash still comes through and PayPal for sure. That's the fastest way of getting it here. Eventually, we'll have one service for the whole world. You know that too. It'll all be wireless because everything must be one in this new world order. Everything must be one. That's their logo, basically. One corrupt bunch running the whole planet and one system, uh, instead of a whole bunch of corrupt ones running the planet, and a, and a variety of sublet systems, all loaned out to subcrooks, and so on. Because that's really what we're living in, and have been for a long time. You know, they say there's no honor amongst thieves, and it's not quite true. And everything really depends upon perception. 
that truly does belong to perception and how you view things and how you're taught to view things. Um, from the thieves' points of view at the top, they believe, they're, and they will, no kidding, they'll tell you they're serving the world. They're serving the world system, all the big players. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter how many billions of dollars they themselves personally have raked in in this new world order. They'll tell you they're serving the system. And that's how the psychopath will always rationalize whatever they do. It's all to do with perception. And of course, you can rationalize everything that you do as well and say it's for the public good. And you can get away with murder. Literally. Back with more after this break. We're back and we're cutting through the matrix, just talking about perception really and how humans can rationalize pretty well anything they do, especially those who climb to the top. And they're rather arrogant about such a tool because they, they don't like being questioned or, and they don't like being contradicted for sure. And they, they belong to all the big clubs. They've climbed all the big clubs in their careers. And I, I used to wonder about how many people it really took to run a world and when you look into your own countries and you go to other countries, you see very few people really, same names crop up all the time that were picked out of university or the same private schools. And they shoot to the top because they're chosen to shoot to the top. They're very dependable by the gangsters who already run the system. And that truly is how you run. But they're not just gangsters. In a sense, they like to, uh, even their little bohemian grove parties and so on, they wave the pirate flag, etc., because you might say they're pirates. The pirates technically were a brotherhood who were sworn not to attack each other, only the other uh, merchant seamen and frigates uh, of other lines. But they themselves were a club with their own codes of honor, they called it. And we shouldn't be surprised because they came out of the Knights Templars and they had their own little club, as we well know. Lots of documentation on it, a lot of farce as well, but a lot of truth there too. And... We've got to the various higher levels of fraternities, which are way above the, the normal things down in your local level, which makes sure that the little clique down below runs your own little town and makes sure who gets the local contracts and so on. It's all to do with contracts and public purse money, really, from the bottom level from your, from your council right to the top in the federal level. It's all to do with who gets their hands in the cookie jars and who they give it to and how much of a kickback they get themselves and how much of a reward they're going to get themselves when they leave their particular position and get put into other private corporations and so on. And just one example that came in today, one of many examples I've got here, but it's about Laura Sidney Eagleburger, you know. I mean, with a name like that, with a name like that, you have to be a winner, right? You couldn't just go into to be, open up a shop or something. Lawrence Sidney Eagleburger, and it says he became a member of the Iraq Study Group in November 2006, following the November 8, 2006, nomination of Group Member Robert M. Gates by President George W. Bush to serve as Secretary of Defense and to replace Donald H. Rumsfeld, who resigned the same day. Egil Berger, who was called a retired foreign service officer, a retired foreign service officer, served under group co-chair James A. Baker III, and so on and so on and so on. 
But then you look at, at what he's served in before. Ser- I like how they call it serving, eh? How do you, how do you, make, how do you like that kind of loot for serving? Hmm? Did they get paid? And it says here, he was born in Milwaukee in 1930. It describes as a career diplomat. Eagleburger joined the Foreign Service in 1957, held a series of embassy, State Department, National Security, and Defense Department posts before serving ambassador in 1977 to 81 to Yugoslavia. He was State Department Assistant Secretary 81-82 and Under Secretary 82-84 before serving as Deputy Secretary of State 89-92 and Secretary of State 92-93 under George Herbert Walker Bush, becoming the first Foreign Service officer to hold the latter post. Now, it says here he also serves as President of Kissinger Associates, Inc., and currently uh, Senior Foreign Policy Advisor with Baker, Donaldson, Behrman and Caldwell, a Washington, D.C. law firm, as a former, as a member of the board of directors of the Halliburton Company, he's member of the audit, the compensation and management oversight, and the nominating and corporate governance committees. He's also in charge of, of um, the Holocaust money retrieval for all survivors, two under Kissinger Associates. But says Mr. Eagleburger is one of the United States leading experts in foreign policies. He's another. It's amazing how Kissinger and Brzezinski. Uh, and uh, Eagleburger, and uh, so a whole, whole bunch of them there in that little club, uh, are all to do with foreign policy and strategy and geopolitics and planning future wars and how they personally will profit from the very companies they end up working for as they're in and out of politics. Yeah. He says he's known throughout the world uh, for his role during the Gulf War in the early 1990s and has remained a prominent government and private sector advisor in the Middle East over recent years. Uh, it says Mr. Eagerberger has nearly four decades of international political experience serving as a U.S. Secretary of State during the President Bush administration. He also held um, posts of Deputy Secretary of State, Under Secretary of State of Political Affairs, uh, Assistant as Secretary of State for European Affairs and U.S. Ambassador to Yugoslavia. Yada, 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 yeah. But anyway, yeah, it says now he's currently the Chairman of the International Commission on the Holocaust Era Insurance Claims in Washington, D.C., I mean, he's just rolling in the cash, eh? Anyway, here's what he was on. It's his affiliations. Now, you can imagine most of you, even you who think you've gone to the better schools and colleges, and just jumping into this lot right off the cuff, his affiliations um, has either served or is serving with the following. Chairman Emeritus Academy of Diplomacy, Director Atlantic Institute, 1987, Director Halliburton Company since 1998, all the government contracts, eh? Director, International Foundation for Education and Self-Help. No kidding. Uh, Director, Conoco Phillips. Uh, Director, Stimsonite. Director, Universal Corporation. Director, Corning Corporation. Director, Comsat. Advisory Board, Oil Space. Strategy Board Member, Appian Group. Member, Council on Foreign Relations, 88-2001. Member, Trilateral Commission, 1992-1998. Uh, Advisory Committee, AmeriCares, at least in 2004. Former Directory is my party, too. I'm not sure what that is. Maybe that's where the big party would have really looted the planet. I don't know. National Honorary Advisory Council, Council for America's First Freedom. So uh, these guys just happen to be at the right place at the right time, don't they? Don't they they just happen to be in the right place at the right time? Wouldn't you think so? And I'll put this link up there, and you can follow it on, because there's a lot more. You can trace it all, too, and so on. But you see, as I say, these guys at the top do not see themselves as crooks. I don't care how much they pocket. And 
they don't see anything wrong with going into government and setting up their geopolitics for wars. And then as they got it started, they leave the political arena for a year or two and go to work for Halliburton, the big companies that rake in the cash from the taxpayer, and they go back into politics again. There's nothing wrong with that. To them, that's normal strategy. But after all, you see, these are the Olympians. These are the people who run the planet and guide it for all you little peasants who would just make an awful mess of it if it was left up to you, you see. In other words, they're chosen at school by pre-existing associations. And the higher the school goes, the more they will select out of those schools the right kind of people who can keep their mouths shut and who are tested to keep their mouths shut and can keep secrets and can turn a blind eye when required. They're all tested, believe you me. But that's only one little example of what's, what really is going on. It's just, it's just incredible. Here's one too. It's about the, the making of Halliburton. And it's from Counterpunch. It's called Sticky Fingers, The Making of Halliburton by Geoffrey Sinclair. There's no more pungent symbol of the corrupt nature of the Bush administration's invasion and occupation of Iraq than Halliburton, the Houston, Texas-based oil services conglomerate, which has made billions from the war even in the face of charges of massive overbilling, shoddy work, official bribery, bribery and political influence peddling. Well, there's nothing new in that. See, to them, that's normal. At the it's amazing how the citizenry of every country are kept in a state of kind of naivety. Because you're taught to be honest and be good, be good, and be honest, and you all get along. And you have no idea this is normal standard practice. When Brian Mulroney was up in government in Canada, and the Airbus scandal came out, he said, um, because it blew up, that there's bribes getting offered for the, 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 the particular contract. And it came out and emerged, and this guy in Canada admitted this, he was, I think, of German ancestry, and he says, this is normal standard business practice. Massive bribing goes on using taxpayers' money. But we're kept in the dark, you know, absolutely in the dark. It says, the remarkable thing is that Halliburton's looting of Iraq and the U.S. Treasury happened in broad daylight, right under the nose of the press, the Democrats and Michael Moore, who made Dick Cheney's former company the bête noire of his film 9-11. Nothing deterred the company from capitalizing on the war it helped orchestrate. Even the Pentagon's own team of auditors who nailed Halliburton's red-handed for bilking the government for $108.4 million in overcharges for only one task order of his work in Iraq found the report languishing in a kind of bureaucratic Netherlands for many months. The damning investigation by the Defence Contract Audit Agency was completed in early October of 2004 and shipped up the line to Pentagon's dark triumvirate, Douglas Fyth, Paul Wolfowitz and Donald Rumsfeld. And there it sat, the Pentagon's civil leadership mothballed the explosive report for more than five months until after the election, the inauguration, the State of the Union address and the Defence Department's budget request for all safety transpired. It was all under the rug. Even Congress was denied a peek at the report findings until 2005. The Pentagon rejected 12 separate requests from Congressman Henry Waxman, the California Democrat who spearheaded the ad hoc congressional inquiry into Halliburton's contract abuse. It's probably because they were working for another company that wanted to mean contracts, because that's how it really works. You don't have any real heroes in this world. I hope you realize that. In politics, definitely not. Anyway, there's a whole list of stuff that they were, <laughs> they were billing here. And how much, and for what, even for donuts, in the millions of dollars. And it's quite something else altogether. And it says here, um, 
The Pentagon used Iraqi oil proceeds to overpay Halliburton, says Waxman. And then the company and the Pentagon sought to hide the evidence of these overcharges from the international auditors. Call it the, the oil for contract scandal, but he didn't hear daily drumbeats about the outrageous rip-off on Fox News. When someone finally leaked the audit to Waxman's office, documents disclosed a thick wad of Halliburton billings that the Pentagon bookkeepers deemed illogical. The most peculiar billing found in a series of uh, transactions was a $27.5 million charge for shipping cooking gas and heating fuel that the Pentagon auditors valued at $82,000. That's not a bad profit. You bill them for $27.5 million, eh? For something worth 82000 And a lot more than that. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back and we're cutting through the matrix, talking about Halliburton, just a little bit about it because it's an amazing history really that's gone into it and uh, that would take so long to even go through and not, not all the guys associated with it too, of course. And, and it is a fascinating history how it started off and uh, how a whole bunch of politicians eventually got involved in it down the, the road and then how Halliburton even uh, put certain politicians into office who became presidents at times. Anyway... It said here that um, the auditors examined only a single task order on Halliburton's scandal-plagued contract with the Army Corps of Engineers, yet the report lambasted nearly every aspect of the deal, from the no-bid award to the cost-plus nature. How would you fancy that for a deal, too? Eh? No bids. You know, we're picking you, and that's it, in this free enterprise system, eh? And it says that um, there was an almost total lack of supervision of the work orders and the subcontractors. And that's how Halliburton really made its money, is getting the government contracts and subcontracting out and subcontracting out. You'd be surprised all governments work this way and all the government orders you get, right down to the guys at the bottom that actually do the work. You might go through ten different companies that are really companies in name only. They just hire lesser workers and take a cut and pass it on down. And it says from May 2003 to March 2004, Hi folks, I'm back on again. I think there's a storm going outside. Right? So I'm, I'm, going to, I'm not going to blame the usual agencies tonight. It could be, it could be the storm. It's really blowing crazy, and the wind is lashing down. Anyway, back to Halliburton. It said here that uh, the Corps of Engineers bills totaling more than 875 million dollars for supplies of fuel to the U.S. operations in Iraq. For the task alone, the Pentagon orders estimate that Halliburton overbilled the government by at least 108.4 million. And that's real money, even by Pentagon standards. But that's not only a rough opening bid for the true scale of the looting, in large part because the company's indefatigable stonewalling. The government's auditor's report accused Halliburton of misleading the government inspectors at nearly every turn. For example, the auditors alleged that Halliburton simply refused to hand over any information on its subcontractors in Kuwait. Halliburton failed to demonstrate its prices for Kuwait fuel were fair and reasonable, and the auditors wrote in their reports. But just one massive, incredible list of the, what they were charging uh, the, the, the U.S. taxpayer. Incredible. This is the Defense Contract Audit Agency report comes in top of previous investigations uh, tagging Halliburton and its Kellogg, Brown and Root subsidiary. That's a very important subsidiary, you see. 
Kellogg, Brown and Root, just fantastic history. For more than $442 million in unsupported billings in its work in Iraq, including charges for meals that were never served, $45 cases of pop, unnecessary heavy equipment, tearing fees, and $152,000 for movie screenings. In all, the report prepared by the Democratic Party Committee estimates that Halliburton's overcharges in Iraq alone exceeds $1 billion. Well, a lot more than that, I think. And it goes on and on and on. But anyway, as I say, they're hammering the, the previous regime, but as far as I'm concerned, one regime just follows the next regime and carries on anyway. And these guys generally change their names, at least the companies do. Very, even Blackwater's changed their name as well, and it's still going strong, and, and they're still getting massive contracts from the U.S. government, where they don't want to put their own troops in, they just hire the mercenaries. And that's the, to be the war types from now on. That's how it's really, really worked out. Now, I've talked about this great communitarian idea that they've pushed, planned an awful long time ago, really, really over 100 years ago, I have no doubt that's how far they planned, how long the hundred years would last, what they'd do in that hundred years, and how they would take it down at the end, and then put it into communitarianism, as we're all utterly stinking poor, you see. And Britain, of course, spearheads away with it. And this article here is from The Observer, and it's about uh, what they're doing with the poor families in big cities now, getting ready for the communitarian idea as they lay off all the civil service and the infrastructure that used to support all the fallout of the awful system of unemployment and so on. Uh, they're doing away with all that, and it will come down to your local community with your local um, common purpose leader, no doubt, uh, to deal with all the problems. And here's, here's what they plan to do. The council's plan for exodus of poor families from London. This is, the, this is how they're doing it. And it says here, um, it's tantamount to, to cleansing the poor out of rich areas, a brutal and shocking piece of social engineering, says John Crudus, Labour MP for Dagenham. Ministers were accused last night of deliberately driving poor people out of wealthy inner cities and as London uh, councils revealed they were preparing a mass exodus of low-income families from the capital because of coalition benefit cuts, the slashing back and all the benefits and so on that used to just keep them going. The representatives of London boroughs told the meeting of MPs last week that councils have already blocked, booked their bed and breakfast and other private accommodation outside the capital from Hastings in the south coast to Reading in the west and Luton to the north to house those who will be priced out of the London markets before the ultra-wealthy only, you see? And that'll be the super city. Of course, it was marked down years ago by the UN. The super cities will have no poor living within them. You believe in your own checks, you know, for your communitarian area. Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, we're back and we're carrying through the matrix. Just reading an article here about the new wonderful method of cutbacks as they restructure the countries and go into austerity, you see, uh, which is all planned a long, long time ago, long before you ever heard of it, and in fact long before you heard of the crash. 
And uh, as he cut back on the social services and uh, early retirements being given to thousands and thousands of civil servants and bureaucrats and all the rest of it, as you go down to your local area of volunteerism, you know, the volunteer workers, and that's where you'll be bunged into these little shacks where you help each other, no doubt, and you'll have little commissars uh, running your lives for you and making sure that you do what you're told, as long as you attend the committee meetings that will be mandatory. Anyway, it says here, uh, councils in the capital, this is in England, London, are warning that 82,000 families, more than 200,000 people, face losing their homes because private landlords enjoying a, a healthy rental market buoyed by young professionals who cannot afford to buy will not cut their rents to the level of caps imposed by the ministers or politicians. And it's just a controversy follows comments last week by Ian Duncan Smith, the work and pension secretary, who said the unemployed should get on the bus and look for work. Isn't that nice, isn't it? Britain's awfully famous for that. Get on the bus and look for work. Another unnamed minister said the benefit changes would usher in phenomenon, uh, a phenomenon similar to the Highland Clearances in the late 18th and early 19th century. Actually, on in the 20th century, the last house they burned down was in 1948. I thought that throw that in. You'll see it in the Edinburgh Museum if you walk up the steps. When landlords evicted thousands of tenants from their homes in the north of Scotland, in a sign that housing benefit cuts are fast becoming the most sensitive political issues for the coalition, John Crudus, Labour MP for Dunningham, last night accused the government of deliberate social engineering. Well, of course that's what it's about. It's all about social engineering. That's really what communism is. In fact, you know, when the communists actually had a man uh, back in uh, the times of Stalin who created the first uh, social engineering machine. It was all cogs and all the rest of it. They still haven't figured out how it worked. And it's supposed to illustrate how the big society all work together in their common purpose. And uh, uh, that's how they try to run society, like a big machine. Uh, they use the same uh, data banks, of course, as, as um, the Rand Corporation. And I'm sure, in fact, the Rand Corporation had a big hand in it, in fact. Uh, because when you judge what they were doing in the Soviets with back home in the U.S., they're exactly the same policies and so on, using the same computers eventually and trying to work everything down into numbers and people predictability factors, etc. And uh, they said they could really work a society like a big machine. And they're still doing it today. Only difference is they're getting rid of the rusty parts, that's the poor, and going to bung them out into the wild somewhere and probably give them a tent, maybe from the United Nations, who knows. This is an exercise in social and economic cleansing, he said, claiming the families would be thrown into turmoil with children having to move school again and those in work having to travel long distances to do their jobs. It's tantamount to cleansing the poor out of rich areas, a brutal and shocking piece of social engineering. Well, that's what it is. And uh, it was worked out a long time before they brought the present crash down because the present crash, of course, was all worked out years and years before that too. It's all going to a timetable. That's all. It's a timetable. Now, there's a caller from Ontario. It's Clint. Uh, is, are you on the line, Clint? Yes, I'm here, Alan. Thank you. Yes, uh, go ahead. My call again. Yeah. Um, first of all, I just want to say I caught your interview this weekend on Alex's uh, YouTube channel, mm-hmm. uh, the one he did with you at Prison Planet. Yeah. Uh, the eight part. It was absolutely fantastic. Uh, I recommend it to anybody listening who haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen it myself. You should actually. You should actually <laughs> Well, you 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 did it yourself, so you already mm-hmm. you know too much about it. Uh, you should actually link that up on your site so people can see it. Yep. Um, you mentioned a few things in that on how uh, 
people are brainwashed in ways like through sports and, and other programming that are on TV. Mm-hmm. And, um, like, there's programs now for, for everybody and their brother as far as cooking and renovation shows and sports and all that. So mm-hmm. it's a good tool for them. Now, with the sports, um, I know from personal experience growing up that, uh, especially here in Ontario, everybody was into hockey or baseball. And uh, with that, they also had rep teams. And that mm-hmm. took a lot of time from families from uh, traveling and spending a lot of money and getting into debt. Yeah. because of the costs and whatnot. So it actually was a, a good two-way tool for them because not only did it take them away from learning what's going on, it, it also got them into debt. <laughs> yes. And that's, that happened probably, I'm sure, in the States with football and baseball, in the U.K. with soccer, yeah. in Australia with rugby and whatnot. So it yeah. worked well for them. It did. Now, uh, another thing I just wanted to mention, um, the muni- municipal elections were uh, last night in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, there was probably a bunch of new councillors that were voted on to the townships throughout Ontario. Now, I have uh, a number here for uh, ICLE with regards to Agenda 21. Mm-hmm. Now, I highly recommend that people contact their councillors and ask them about it. Now, the lady you can call uh, ICLE is the Director of Canada. Would you mind that I give her phone number out? Sure, go ahead. Okay, her name is Megan Meany, and the phone number is one. 1- Six four seven seven two eight four three nine four. Now people can find this uh, themselves as well at ickley.org. Just go to the members area and look for the numbers. But anyways, I, I highly recommend people call her and then find out who the the representatives for their local townships, and then contact the counselor and ask them about Agenda Twenty One and what it's all about. And she told me personally that it's has everything to do with just implementation of tax with mm-hmm. regards to the global climate. Mm-hmm. And it's going to come down with every aspect of infrastructure within townships, from schooling mm-hmm. to roads to just, just everything. Yeah. And uh, as we know, that's a scam. So yes. that's a, a part of their agenda, and I think people should really wake up to that. Mm-hmm. It's roads, it's everything. It's also to do with fulfilling the old, old plan that was to happen at this time, were to be used for a hundred years to, to conquer the planet for the big boys, and then they would demolish us and take us down to a pretty well third world status, except for some super cities. And even in the reports from the Canadian and the US and the British think tanks for their militaries, they've said the same thing, that there'll be some super cities left across the world, and they've named the places they'll be left. And outside that would be very, very rural. The UN itself has also said in its own website, uh, that by the year 2030, there'll be very, very few people ever uh, ever seeing, never mind living on the country, uh, and those ones will be extremely rich. Now, that'll be the same as this old Soviet system where they had their big dash hours outside uh, for the high diplomats and so on with their servants, uh, but the rest of the public won't even be involved. And they went even further that there'll be no, even the farmers they will use for what the existing farming will be bussed out of the cities to their workplaces and bussed back home at night. They don't want anyone living in the land, at least not the peasants anyway. It's just yeah. like 1984, exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, um, now, is this a program that Maurice uh, Strong implemented himself with the UN? Uh, because obviously, like, he tutored Al Gore. And Al Gore mm-hmm. has since pushed this. Yeah. You know, does this tie back to him? 
He was a front man. See, both Gore and um, uh, Maurice Strong were front men for the big Rockefeller group. In fact, it was really one of the Rockefellers who drafted up the Earth Charter that they got everyone to sign on to, as a, not as a treaty, but as a charter, but really had the same force as a binding treaty, and they got every country to sign on to it, and that was the beginning of it. Under that charter, uh, no human had rights anymore. Only insects, animals, the, the land, etc., had rights, and that's just how they're playing the game on the public themselves. Yeah. But they're also using, uh, this is another thing too, if you go into the UN website, and I have it, I have a had up before, I might give you the link to it if anyone finds it, but um, the UN had a, a little blurb on one of their sites, and it said that because so many people have found out what Agenda 21 is all about, we advise our members to use other names for the same the same agenda. And so they're using terms like sustainability and all of that kind of stuff instead. So all of that stuff is all Agenda 21. Yeah, and then yeah. the Earth Charter was when uh, it came in the UN when when they started. At 92 it was 92 was the first signing, and then they had another one later on a few years later, and that's what they always do. They start off uh, uh, scratching the surface, they get that signed, they get another one, they go further with more demands, they get that signed, and so on. Yeah. See, that's uh, I like to get information like that because I always forward to the councillor who's a representative in my town, and it's funny he's the son of a former mayor. So mm-hmm. It's yes. really how it's funny how all this ties in, but I like to send him information. I ask him questions. What's this mean? What's this mean? And, yeah. and usually I get no reply. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But, uh huh. Having said that, I just want to leave with a quote from Martin Luther King, and he he once said, "Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter." Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that's important here. So people need to uh, you know really jump on this and and end it before it goes too far. Oh, absolutely. It's almost there now. Yeah. Yep, it is. Okay, Alan, thank you for taking my call. Thanks for calling in. But that's true. Um, uh, it really is almost too late, in fact. See, all the machinery to set up is already working in action in hundreds of places. Every town, even the little old Sudbury, uh, it's a little mining place, and started up by the Rothschild family, by the way. That were the first ones in there in the 1800s. And uh, little Sudbury, um, They've got their own um, environmental group that suddenly appeared out of nowhere who now advise a local council. They've already, already been there only for a year. What the feds do is when they retire their top civil servants and so on, they'll give them an early retirement and then advise them after a training course to go into the little areas, settle down, to get help buying a house, to make it for free, all paid for by the taxpayer. And then they're told to set up their NGOs and announce themselves in the newspapers and that's no problem at all to get lots of publicity. And then they become suddenly overnight, um, help, they're, they're on the boards directing the policies of your local council regarding environmentalism and all the rest of it. So they've been at this for years, long-term infiltration. I've talked to some who were given these courses um, from the federal government myself, six-month course. I couldn't believe it. They call it, they call it pre-retirement courses, teaching them to be involved in community service, especially to do with the environment, uh, so that when they retire, they won't get bored, but they'll get paid extra cash for doing it all, you see. Incredible. The folk haven't a clue how the real system works, and the government ain't about to tell you. <laughs> now, the poor queen, the queen bee, of course, is quite amazing. Uh, the queen's £38 million a year offshore windfall, if, wind farm windfall because she owns the seabed. I don't know if you realize that all the contracts the government dished out uh, to for the big wind farms happen to be on the house the the, the 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 land of big 
landowners who were all lords, you see, and relatives to the queen. Just having to pick those particular places. All you have to do is get them a little bit of land there, they stick up their wind farm, and you sit back and you get thousands of pounds per month because it's there. That's not bad, eh? You don't even have to mow the lawn. Huh? Anyway, it says here, um, that the prince is to profit from his support from green energy. Of course he is. He can't make any money any other way because he's no brain. Lucrative deal is a masterstroke for Palisade, it says. The revenue is already soaring by 44% a year. This is the same queen that tried to get our, our money for Buckingham Palace heating in that from the poor laws and claim the money that was set aside for the poor people from the government. It's the same person. And you think they're all... And people go out and applaud these crooks. Can you believe it? Oh. Anyway, they secured a lucrative deal that will earn them tens of millions of pounds from the massive expansion of offshore wind farms. They will net up up to £37.5 million extra income every year uh, from the drive for green energy, green energy, because the seabed within Britain's territorial waters is owned by the Crown Estate. The Queen owns the sea. Huh? Not bad, eh? Under, I thought, I thought Nemo owned that, Captain Nemo. Under new measures announced by Chancellor George Osborne last week, the royals will soon get 15% of the profits from the estate's £6 billion property portfolio rather than the existing civil list arrangement. And it says, experts predict the growth in offshore wind farms could be worth up to £250 million a year to the Crown estate, that's to, to the Queen. There are already 436 turbines in operation around the UK, There's the 7,700-mile coastline, but within a decade, that number is set to reach nearly 7,000. Prince Charles is a vociferous campaigner for renewable energy sources such as these, but as opposed to turbines being erected on land, particularly near his own homes, so no doubt he'll put them on his tenant farmers' homes instead. That's generally how they do, eh? (laughs) He has described wind farms as horrendous blot on the landscape and has refused to have any built at his High Grove home or in the Duchy of Cornwall estate. But he's expressed enthusiasm for citing them offshore for a mummy. Oh, that's nice. The Crown Estate said profits from wind farms in Britain's territorial waters, which extend almost 14 miles from the coast, could rise to £100 million a year, giving the royals an extra £15 million. You know, she also gets a paycheck as well for her costs for waving her hand once in a while when she's getting pulled around in that big golden carriage. Not bad, eh? Good. It's a good work if you can get it, mind you. It's good work if you can get it. All benefits. So, that's the world we live in. We call it the, the most uh, advanced civilization that's been on the planet, and we're so advanced and caring, etc. And right now they're booting all the poor folk out of London while the Queen's getting her wind farms built and dragging in the cash. Doesn't do anything, just signs her signature and enrolls the cash. Hmm? Not bad, eh? Not bad. I can remember years ago they found uh, an, an old treasure at a place called Croy in Scotland, and they thought it was maybe some monks or something that had been invaded by the Vikings and buried all their gold wares and their goblets and all that. And the the the, the guy who found it didn't run off to smelt it down like he should have. Uh, he went and reported it. And the, the crown immediately grabbed it from because you see anything that's found on the British land. Doesn't matter who owns the property. So you only own four inches of the soil. Um, all the land belongs to the crown, and all treasures from the past belong to the crown, even if if they didn't even exist at that time as a royal family or any other descendants. Not a bad deal, that either, eh? 
That's pretty good. Pretty good. And it is known as the Afghanistan, of course, apart from its opium uh, flourishing and heroin trade, uh, is to develop $3 trillion in mining uh, and the potential that this is, is there. $3 trillion in mining potential. And they're fighting over it. I'm sure they've already worked out who's going to get it. Afghanistan is estimated to be sitting on $3 trillion worth of untapped mineral deposits, but poor infrastructure and investor caution inhibiting development of its mining industry, its mines, ministers said. Uh, this estimate is based only on 30% of the country's area. There's still 70% we, we still have no idea about. Afghan mines minister Wahidullah Sharani told Reuters in an interview on the sidelines of an industry conference in Dubai on Monday. So the, that's only a, a fraction of the country, and there's $3 trillion worth being fought over right now. Never mind the pipelines that go through it as well, and the oil that's under there too, or as I say, the opium fields that now flourish uh, since they kicked out the Taliban, who forbid them to be used. And, of course, George Bush was the guy responsible for that. I'm amazed at how many photographs will show you soldiers, American or British, guarding the poppy fields to make sure that no one comes and nicks them for some neighboring tribe. That's got to all go to your heroin, you see. It's a big market. And they all need that cash, you know, for Halliburton and the big boys. From Hamish myself, I know it's not, though, actually, but one more time to go. So we're back after this break. We're back and we're cutting through the matrix. And we'll take Mark from Wisconsin. Are you there, Mark? Yes, sir, I'm here. Yes. Hey, I was watching uh, UN Ted Turner Classics, you know, the movies, the old-time movies. Mm -hmm. And they're colorizing the skies purple in there. Yep. Mm -hmm. You believe that? I mean, wait, wait till they get the cloud and the Kindle system going full blast where they can change history every day. Well, I always remember the Beatles singing at the, the tangerine, was it tangerine's marmalade skies, marmalade sky. I thought, yeah, here we go, uh, getting us all used to what's coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I, I stopped over in Ireland not too long ago, and uh, I went to Kilmaine Prison, uh, uh-huh. you know, uh, the, the brainchild of uh, Jeremy Bentham, yep. an opticon. And uh, they, they actually... Uh, they stopped short of saying that the prison was scientifically designed, but they said that everything in the prison was built for a reason. They had a kitchen in the in the bottom floor so that all the steam wafted up in the cells, and the walls were made of limestone, and everybody was getting TB. Yeah. So I think yeah. they actually planned on killing those people. Not only that, they served them their their breakfast and lunch and dinner out of the toilet, out uh-huh. of a bucket. They would throw their feces out in the morning, put their food in it, put it back in their cells. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that's the dehumanization processes and techniques they've used and lots of experiments even since then, too, yeah. Right, right. And I was going to talk, the Eastern Rebellion, uh, they, they even said that those guys were in a secret society. And you know everything went wrong for the Irish in the Eastern Rebellion. They found yeah. their ammo dumped the day before it was supposed to go off, and, and uh, it was just a comedy of errors, like they had planned it so that they could bring in more British rule. Well, they were completely infiltrated even then. Uh, that's the one thing you'll find about England, and even from the, the days of Queen Elizabeth I, uh, they, they infiltrated every country that there are agents in amongst the people. And it's no different today. Afghanistan's riddled with uh, informers, uh, and every other country they, they go into is the same. 
So uh, same with um, Pakistan and so on. Same with Iran, even. They've got all their informers waiting. They're passing all the, all the data. They never sit back. They always make sure they've got hundreds of them in place for years collecting the data uh, so they can take them down. And nothing can happen in this world today without the knowledge of those at the top. Nothing can happen. You could even start up a little group to, to put paintballs or something on someone's window without them knowing about it. Um, that's, how, uh, that's, why, that's why 9-11 could never have happened, never have happened without the knowledge of the, the high intelligence agencies. Absolutely. Yep. Hey, I went to the New Grange Mounds, too, or should I say the New Grange uh, uh, Pyramids. Uh, they, they actually talked about the, uh, the pyramids of Egypt and everything, and they mm-hmm. never once told anybody in the tour that these, these mounds are actually pyramids that are just buried. I had to look uh-huh. that up on the internet in 1913. I found an article where they called them pyramids. Yes, well, that's so right. And, and yeah, uh, and of course, there's much, much more to it all than that too. Uh, very old history, um, and Scotland as well. There's some there that aren't even mentioned on the maps. But um, it's, it's just incredible how ancient these people were, and they tried to stifle their history, make them look out to be savages of some kind or another. And meanwhile, they were burning, they were building these uh, astronomical cities, and they were astronomically based. They had the, the, the sun would come through the window or, or the rising and, and the summer solstice, and only on that day would it come through and shine on the back. Yeah, uh, and other ones for the moon and so on. So they were way ahead, of course. But it also shows you the world was tied together at some time in ancient prehistoric times with the same kind of buildings across the world. It's very interesting. Yep. There are phallic symbols everywhere, and now I'm starting to see the same symbols in my own town in Madison, Wisconsin. It's yes. crazy. Yes, yeah. Oh, yeah. The generative principle, that's what it is. From Hamish Marcel from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God, or your gods go with you.